Good morning, church family. When we show up to church, we're looking for some sort of life change. Even if you're here this morning and you're, you're seeking, is God real? Does God have a purpose for my life? What's the difference between Christianity and Islam and Buddhism or just secular thought? There's this desire to have some sort of change be real. If you're brand new to church in the sense of you've been a Christian for a couple of years, you're wondering, well, now how do I live? What does that look like? How is it going to impact my time at work, at home, at play? How does it affect my relationship? How does it affect my money and how I spend my time? And even if you've been a Christian for a long time, you're still wondering, what does the passage today mean for me today? Last week was one of the hardest sermons I've preached in about a year. We talked both about hell and about money. And the big idea last week was examine the use of your wealth for it has eternal consequences. And it's one thing to talk about that. It's another thing to actually go forth and do it. And there's a few stories of what took place last week that was joyful for me to hear. After the first service, one of our seniors was working in the foyer as a first impressions host, and someone came in, probably homeless, and said, hey, I just would like a pass for the bus. I want to get to a shelter downtown. If you're able to have any other money, that would be great. And the guy looked at him and said, well, I'm going to do better than that. I'm going to drive you downtown. We can talk the whole way. It's minus 40 outside. That way um, you'll be safe and secure and we'll get you there. A woman in our church said that she was uh, at a grocery store and someone was there who didn't work for the store but was offering to take people's carts back from their car to where all the carts go and then he would keep the loony and you'd get into your car faster. And this individual said to me, uh, I didn't have, uh, I wanted to give him more than a loony, but there was no fives or tens. And so I looked in my wallet and I only had a 20. But God said to me, I am able to give you groceries whenever you want. Surely you can give that $20 bill to this man. One story that brought a tear to my eye was another guy was in the store and he watched somebody take stuff off the shelf, look at the price, put it back. Took something else off the shelf, looked at the price, put it back. And he said to me, I just felt this inclination that I should offer to buy this man some groceries. And the book of James says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. After two weeks speaking on money, we're going to move away from financial currency. But today we're going to talk about relational currency. And for some of us in this room, it might be even more difficult to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Luke and thank you for this journey to the cross, a reminder of what you are calling us to do on a regular basis. And may we be a group of people who don't merely listen to the word, but that we would be a group of people that do what the word is calling us to do. So God, we pray that my words would fall down, that yours would be lifted up, and we would be people who respond to you and see the glory of Jesus throughout. Pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. If you're brand new to church, should be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Of course, if you have a phone, you can download the app on the screen behind me. Luke is in the New Testament, which means it's after the birth of Jesus. We're in chapter 17. The big numbers are the chapter numbers. Smaller numbers are the verse numbers. And here's what's happening so far. There's back-to-back-to-back parables taking place. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus is talking to a large group of people. He's also talking to his disciples disciples and the Pharisees who are the religious leaders of the day. And he's telling them in this parable the wonderful, incredible love of God. And there's this father whose son says to him, Dad, I basically wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance. And the son spends the money and he comes back hoping to just be a slave on his dad's farm. And his dad surprises him and welcomes him in with open arms. 
But there's also an older son who the dad recognizes is not happy with what's taking place and he says to him, don't just worry about always doing what you're doing to please me. Understand that I wanna have a real relationship with you, not this give and take of, of pleasure and what that looks like. The second parable in um, all of chapter 16, there's two parables that take place. The crowds have now gone, gone away and it's just the Pharisees and the disciples. And Jesus is looking to all of these people who are present and he's telling them, I want you to use your money to build the kingdom of God. When we arrive in chapter 17, the Pharisees are gone, the crowds are gone, it's just the disciples. And he's gonna talk a little bit about forgiveness. Here is Luke chapter 17, verses one to three. And Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. For those of you who enjoy taking notes, we're gonna start with a need for forgiveness. There's this idea here in, in uh, chapter two about a millstone being tied around your neck if you were to cause somebody to sin. I don't care how good of a swimmer you are, you aren't swimming with a millstone tied around your neck. This rock probably weighs two to 300 pounds and is used for grinding grain. And Jesus is saying it is better for you to just die than if you were to cause somebody to sin. He's really serious about this. But temptation's an interesting thing. Temptation in and of itself is not a sin. In Luke chapter four and in Matthew chapter four, Jesus, right before he begins his public ministry, is tempted by Satan. Satan tempts him with food. He tempts him with health. He tempts him with worship. And every time, Jesus replies by quoting a passage of scripture from Deuteronomy and saying, I'm going to worship the Lord my God alone. But temptation is in front of us all the time. Right now, my wife and I are watching a show with a ridiculously good-looking male protagonist. He's like six foot three, his chest is as wide as that keyboard, and of course, he takes his shirt off from time to time, and you see his rippling abs, and my wife hides her face under the blanket, and I say, we're basically twins. <laughs> but it's true, right? We look at somebody, and we go, we know that person is beautiful. What do we do with that? But you're allowed to say that person is really good-looking. Good for them. The problem is, the sin is when we dwell on that, when we hope to be with them and we want to do certain things with them. If you were to drive to my house, depending on which direction you came from, you would pass million dollar homes. I do not live there. But as you drive up that street, you can go, those homes are gorgeous. And I say that to myself regularly. The problem is, oh, I wish I lived there. I wish I had that kind of money. I wish I could afford a housekeeper to take care of that house. Think of the parties I could host. But sometimes it works in other ways as well. You look at injustice, you see sex trafficking, you see how new Canadians are treated, you see the uh, horrors around this world and you think, I wanna do something about that, that's good. The temptation there to, it leads into sin when we think I'm angry and I'm mad and I wanna hurt somebody or do something bad about that. So Jesus looks to his disciples and he says, temptations are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. You see, it's easy because we can look around, we can go, oh, that person is causing temptation to take place. Maybe you think about your workplace or your organization and you think, my boss can't figure it out. 
My boss rewards bad behavior, and so it doesn't matter if we're good. We don't get incentives to be good, but we get incentives to be bad. If we show up late, nothing happens. If we cheat a little bit, if we lie to our client, then suddenly we get a bonus. So why is he doing this in that way? Sometimes our neighbors tempt us. They have loud parties or they smoke too much marijuana and it hits us and it's 2 a.m. and the music's still going on and we have this temptation of we want to get back at them. We want to start our snowblower at 7 a.m. and make them pay for keeping us till 2 a.m. Or you look around the church, a person on the other side of the congregation. Whenever they talk, they try to one-up me. Whenever they talk, they make me feel bad. Whenever they talk, it's like they're just trying to show off about how great they are. And then Jesus does something really interesting in the first few words of chapter seven, uh, of verse three. He says, pay attention to yourselves. You see, it's easy to point at somebody else and say, oh, they're the ones that are doing bad things that are causing me to sin. But do we ever look in the mirror and go, what am I doing? Friends, what are our words like? Do we gossip about people? Do we talk about people behind their back? Do we speak in such a way that we're always complaining and that people that spend time around us think, oh yeah, I guess it really is miserable in this certain area. If we were to phrase it in a question, what are you doing that might be causing people to sin? And you might think, oh, Dave, my life is really good. I'm not doing it at all. Really? I work really hard on these messages. And I wonder how often I'm accidentally causing people to sin. Am I putting too much attention on myself and not enough attention on Jesus? As much as I work hard at getting the main point of the passage and that become the main point of the sermon, am I a little bit off and leading you astray and accidentally spiritual abuse is taking place? Am I talking about money and hell and I want to be persuasive and I want us to use our money well, but at the same time, it's a little bit of a guilt trip and you feel bad when you leave the church. That's not the intention. And that's just me preaching. What am I like as a coworker? What am I like for the board to work with? What am I like as a husband? What am I like as a father? What am I like in the other places that I, I spend time with? And so we're looking at ourselves to recognize what am I accidentally doing that might be causing people to sin? Because forgiveness cuts two ways. One, we recognize that all of us need forgiveness. And two, we need to turn around and to give that forgiveness out. Which leads us to the second part of our message this morning. We're going to be spending the bulk of our time in verse 3 alone. I'm going to read the first four verses again. Jesus said to his disciples, temptation to sin are sure to come. But woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. What's interesting is this hinge verse, we just looked at it a moment ago, pay attention to yourselves. If you have a new international version in front of you, you'll notice that it goes with the first couple of verses. If you have an ESV or a different translation, it clumps all of them together. And the commentators look at this verse and they say, well, what does it belong to? Does it belong to the need for forgiveness or does it belong to helping us grow in forgiveness? Yes. And so here's where we begin with verse three. Pay attention to yourselves. Uh, this is the sub point. Humanize the sinner. 
Now, you might look at that and be like, I, I, Dave, I don't really know what that means, so let me give you two illustrations. You're driving around town, it's winter time, it's icy outside, and some idiot is driving right past you and he's swerving around and you're thinking, what is that guy's problem? But then a week later, you drive fast and you're weaving in and out of traffic, but you have a reason for it. I'm late to picking up my child. I've got a big appointment. If I miss this client, I might lose the sale. And so what happens is we caricaturize that other guy. He almost becomes cartoonish. What idiot would drive like that? But when we do something, it's rationalized. Second illustration. During the month of December, a lot of you were probably invited to some social engagements, right? We had parties here at the church. You probably had some time together with family and with friends, maybe a work party. And I am not looking for a show of hands. But how many of you left those parties going, ooh, she put on weight? <laughs> oh man, whenever I talk to that person, that guy treats me like garbage. Oh man, there they go, bragging again about their fancy vacations. And let me guess, during those parties, you never said or did anything wrong. But we're, human, we're not humanizing the sinner. You exclude yourself from the community of sinners and exclude them from the community of humans. Watch yourself. Do we recognize what we're doing? where we characterize somebody, we almost make them cartoonish, but we think we would never do that same thing, and we do it all the time. The second thing we see in verse three, if, you if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. That word rebuke, we're going to expand it a little bit more and have this idea of work towards restoration. We think rebuke and we think to ourselves, oh, I'm going to get me some pound of flesh. I'm going to make that guy pay for what he did to me. I'm going to let him know what he did was wrong and it is not going to be okay. Have you forgiven them before you approach them? Before you rebuke somebody, have you actually forgiven them in your heart? Because the whole point of forgiveness, the whole point of that rebuke is a restoration both with God and with one another. And until we're ready to say, I want that person to be in a good relationship with me, I want that person to live a life that is glorifying to God, we can't go up to them and rebuke them. The second part of that is, what kind of relationship do you have? We don't want to be this church of watchdogs where we see somebody sin and we immediately point it out. We're not going to put cameras in the foyer that recognize sin and an alarm goes off and an automated voice says, sinner, 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 because we'd all be caught. So three thoughts. Did you personally witness the event? You're in a parking lot somewhere. A car pulls out of their parking stall, smacks the other car, dents the fender, and rips off. You're personally a witness. Did you catch their license plate? Can you help out in that way? Do you care about somebody as a friend? Do you care about somebody so much that when you witness this destructive pattern of behavior, you love them enough to sit down with them and talk to them about it? I notice you never speak well about your partner. I know what you make because we talk about our salaries and yet you're spending way more than you have. Are you ever happy or are you always complaining? Third thing, do you have a formal responsibility? For those of you in this room who are parents, 
we love our children, and because we love our children, we discipline our children. They're, that's part of parenting, is rebuking them and helping them to grow in righteousness. If you're in management at work, the rest of your employees all know about that one bad employee. What are you doing to restore them to relationship? Now, you might be thinking, okay, Dave, how do we do this? Jesus, in Matthew chapter 18, says, if your brother sins against you, go to him and tell him his fault. Between you and him, alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Heads up, this next illustration is going to hit, I'm guessing, about half of you. Two months ago, sometime in November, me and one of my really good friends are going out for coffee. And we're talking, we're laughing, we're engaging back and forth, and he says, hey Dave, um, I need to say something to you, I think there's a destructive pattern of behavior in your life. And so I thought, well, giddy up, there's some things I have to say to you too. I didn't say that. And he says, did you tell me that you share um, one of your streaming services with a friend? And I was like, yeah, I shared Disney Plus with my sister. We split it 50-50. And he said to me, you're stealing and it's not just Disney you're stealing from, you're stealing from me because I'm a shareholder of Disney and you have to recognize what you're doing. And I thought, oh man. You hear Netflix cutting down, cracking down on password sharing and you think those corporate greedy monsters. But then you realize, oh yeah, I am stealing. But do you see what took place there? He did it in private. He did it because we had a relationship, at least he did until I threw coffee at his face and binge-watched Star Wars. <laughs> and he told me that because he loves me. It's hard. But my friend did it, and I'm glad my friend did it. But then you say to yourself, well, how do we have the strength to go through with this? How can we do that? For those of you taking notes, this is the final part. Understand the cost. Again, picking up in verse three. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, turn to you seven times saying, I repent. You must forgive him. Pardon me. I'm jumping ahead. Uh, part three in, in verse three is um, if he repents, forgive him. We have to understand the cost when it comes to forgiveness. Going back to that illustration of um, somebody hitting your car in the parking lot, somebody has to pay for that. So either we forgive him and we pay the deductible ourselves, we forgive him but we ask him to pay the deductible, or we forgive him when we drive around with a broken bumper, somebody has to pay the cost. Now, when it comes to restoration, a lot of uh, restoration isn't physical, it's emotional or uh, relational restoration. Most of us, probably all of us in this room, have been verbally abused at some point in our lives. A spouse, a family member, a coach, a teacher, a pastor, a coworker has spoken to you in such a way that you feel broken inside. And so we have to understand the cost that when we forgive that individual, we recognize that I am not going to get my pound of flesh. That to forgive means I am not going to bring it up again, but I'm going to let it go. But it costs something to do that. But what's the alternative? Bitterness is like drinking poison, hoping the other person will die. 
Either way, it's hard. One last comment before I move to the third point now. You might be familiar with that phrase, forgive and forget. It is not found anywhere in the scriptures. It is not healthy to forgive and forget. And as uh, you might study the scriptures and think, well, Dave, what happens when somebody sins against us regularly? You remove them from your life. You can find this in scripture. It's not just some idea that might make you feel good. It can be found in 1 Corinthians 6 and in other places as well, Matthew 18. But there comes a point where we recognize if somebody is verbally abusive, hopefully we can restore that relationship and make things right, and they stop verbally hurting us. But at some point, it might not work. You don't forget about it. You remove them from your life. In a room this full, many of us have experienced uh, sexual abuse. I believe the stats, the stats are all over the place. Some say one in four women, some say one in six, some say one in eight people altogether. But many people in this room have been sexually abused. You do not forget about that. I hope that if you are in this room and that's taken place to you, that you've been able to restore that relationship. And even if you have and you now have children of your own, that does not mean that person who abused you gets to babysit your children. That would be a horrible idea. We forgive them, we remember what happens, and we choose not to bring it up. Even if the relationship is unable to be restored, we still forgive them, and they just may not be in our life any longer. So you can see where the disciples are coming from. Jesus, how are we supposed to do this? How are we supposed to live in this way? Because what you're saying seems really difficult. Picking up in verse three, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles say to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. One of the shortest uh, proverbs and uh, parables in scripture. Look for the twist. Will any, of, any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant, does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. You can imagine where the disciples are coming from. And uh, Jewish expectations was you would forgive somebody three times. So when Jesus says forgive him seven times, there's, he's doubling it and adding one. And the apostles are going, but that's really hard, Jesus. How do we do this? We can't do this on our own. And this idea of faith is an interesting one. One commentator writes, faith is not a matter of quantity, but of presence. And so when they're saying increase our faith, Jesus is saying, you don't need more faith. You've placed your faith in the wrong thing. You're trying to forgive somebody on your own. You're trying to forgive somebody on your own power. You're trying to forgive somebody on your own volition. Have faith in me. And then when you have faith in me, you will recognize how powerful I am, how wonderful it is to be in relationship with me, and how I can help you restore that relationship with others. And then he shares a parable. 
Now, parables typically have a twist. Looking at the last um, few chapters that we've been going through, I've already looked at 15 and 16 a little bit. In Luke 15, you don't expect the dad to warmly embrace the son who wished him dead. In the first half of Luke 16, you don't expect the shrewd manager to um, give away somebody else's money to make friends, only to be applauded for it. Last week in the second half of Luke 16, you don't expect the rich Jewish man to end up in hell. What's the twist in these few verses? The short parable seemingly has no twist. The servant simply does his job without complaining. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come and join me up on the platform. If you're on the prayer team, if you could come forward for people who want prayer. Now read that again. The short parable seemingly has no twist. The servant simply does his job without complaining. You might think, yeah, Dave, we all read it together. That's exactly what it says. But when you think about the human structures in your life, when you think about government, when you think about school, when you think about your workplace, when you think about the church, how many people don't complain? You know what I love about the government? Everything. It's awesome. You know what we think about our workplace? Our boss never makes mistakes. He is God's gift to our organization. We don't think that way. We look at the government and think, if we were in control, this is how we would do it differently. If I ran the business, it would actually make a profit. If I showed up to that church ministry, boy, oh boy, would it be run to perfection. And here's what's interesting. We are servants who think like kings. We are servants who think we should be king, and if we're going to have our hearts radically transformed, what it's going to take is a king who acts like a servant. And the only king who does that is the son of God who says, I love these people so much, I'm going to leave the throne room of heaven and I'm going to come down to earth and I'm going to be sinned against. I'm going to be sinned against so horrendously that I'm going to pay the penalty upon that cross. I'm going to be sinned against every single day. Some of these people are going to sin against me seven times or more a day, and I'm going to forgive them. And I'm going to show them what it means to be a person of the kingdom of God because I am going to forgive them time and time and time again. And the disciples hear this and their hearts are warm just like ours should be this morning. This is the king that we worship. A king who has become a servant, who died on the cross for our sins, that we might be able to have an eternity with him, knowing that we are forgiven and the example that he has set for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gospel of Luke. Thank you that you continually pursue our hearts guiding us, leading us to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. May we be a group of people who love you deeply, who are so transformed by the work of your son, Jesus Christ, that we, of course, turn around and share that love, where we share that forgiveness with others and see the kingdom of God expand in our midst. May we be people, O oh God, that use our time, our talents, our treasures to bring you glory. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.